Good morning. We're going to continue in Matthew chapter 12. I was really hoping to finish this chapter, but there's just too much good stuff. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12 this week and next week before we move on. Why are people so stubborn? (laughs) Uh, Do we realize stubbornness is really a bad thing? Um, You know, I just kind of wonder that sometimes. I found... um, a stubbornness article by Harvard Business Review, and I'm going to title this, You Might Be a Stubborn Person If. Like Jeff Foxworthy's, You Might Be a Redneck If. Uh, You might be a stubborn person if you keep at an idea or plan or insist on making your point even when you know you're wrong. You might be a stubborn person if you do something, uh, you do something you want to do even if no one else wants you to do it. You might be a stubborn person if when others present an idea, you tend to point out all the reasons it won't work. You might be a stubborn person if you visibly feel angry, frustrated, and impatient when others try to persuade you of something that you don't agree with. You might be a stubborn person if you agree to commit half-heartedly to others' requests when you know all along that you're going to do something entirely different. He goes on to say, Stubbornness is the ugly side of perseverance. Uh, Those who exhibit this attribute cling to the notion that they're passionate, decisive, full of conviction, and able to stand their ground, all of which are admirable leadership characteristics. It's funny how people tend to be so stubborn. Uh, And we might not see our stubbornness as such a bad thing. We might actually think that we're doing good, that we are uh, being good leaders and strong leaders. And and I like how he put in there, uh, stubbornness is the ugly side of perseverance. Really, perseverance is the opposite, right? Uh, You're stubborn if you're clinging to and won't let go of something that you know is wrong. And you're persevering if you're clinging to and holding on to something that you know is true. Uh, So they're really actually kind of polar opposites. And any of us who have had strong-willed children or uh, maybe just any toddler, uh, we know what that kind of stubbornness and that, that defiance looks like as they cling to something that they ought to know is completely wrong. But they're going to fight till the end. Uh, to see if maybe somehow they can win this fight or this argument, uh, that they're just going to keep at it over and over again. Well, in the book of Matthew, we've seen a group of people who appear to be extremely stubborn. Uh, And these people are known as the Pharisees. They see many mighty works that Jesus does. They they hear Jesus' teachings, and yet they refuse to listen and to submit to what Jesus has told them. Uh, Last week, we looked at the first part of uh, Matthew chapter 12, and we saw Jesus and his disciples just walking through the grain fields. They're eating uh, the grain on the Sabbath, grinding it up in their hands, and they say, oh, they're breaking the Sabbath, and they're all upset uh, because they're eating grain on the Sabbath. And we saw that that's not, that wasn't sinful. That was uh, God's provision for the poor, and he and his disciples are doing the work of the Lord, and they're poor. They don't have food on the Sabbath. That was something that God provided for them to eat. And then we see them condemning Jesus for doing good on the Sabbath, healing on the Sabbath. Um, And and 
Jesus reminds them again, uh, you should have known what this means. I've already told you this. You should have known what this means. When God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is kind of a theme that we've seen in this study of Jesus teaching uh, the people and teaching the Pharisees in specific um, that they are, they are all about the sacrifice, but they have nothing to do with mercy. Uh, back in chapter 9, Jesus is surrounding himself by sinners. He brings in Matthew the tax collector, and they, they look at him as though he's evil, and he says, you need to know what this means. I, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, Hosea 6.6. 6. Go and learn what this means. Well, earlier in chapter 12, we see they have not learned what it means. Instead of being merciful, they're so focused on their, their rules, their checklists, their laws, that they've forgotten mercy altogether. And yet Jesus is here showing mercy in a, in a profound way as he heals all those who are suffering, even doing it on his day of rest. <laughs> He's out there healing uh, men and women who come to him. At the end of our study last time in Isaiah, he, he brings out, this was all to fulfill Isaiah, where God said, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. A picture of Jesus as having this character and this attitude of gentleness and tenderness and mercy toward all those around him. And, and really, the story just continues. As you go through chapter 12, it's not intended to be broken up, but for sake of time, we have to break it up. The story just continues from there. Look at verse 22. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. So Jesus continues to heal. And it says, And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Notice in this text, Jesus does a mighty miracle, a mighty powerful act. He heals a demon-possessed man who is also blind and mute. <laughs> Three in one, he heals. Uh, this is a very powerful sign, a very powerful miracle that, that makes everybody step back and just, just wonder, uh, is this possibly the son of David? Is this the Messiah? This is such a strong statement that the people are really considering this to be the Messiah. They, they really are believing it, it seems. But then these Jews, these Pharisees come in, and they try to stir up doubt in all those who have witnessed this miracle by saying, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, what do they mean when they say that? We don't talk about Beelzebul a lot. Uh, what is Beelzebul? And why are they saying it is by Beelzebul, uh, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons? Well, it's obvious, isn't it, that they're claiming this is all a big deception, this is a scheme of, of evil that Jesus is doing. By, heal, by healing these demon-oppressed people, he's actually just trying to deceive you. He's using the power of Beelzebul. Beelzebul is a, a foreign god that 
I think the Ammonites had, had at one time worshipped, and it, uh, it, it actually means Lord, right? Baal is Lord, Beelzebul, Lord of the flies, okay? I don't really know why uh, they worship the Lord of the flies. Who, and there's even a book out about it, and it's pretty messed up. But, uh, you know, the, the Lord of the flies, like, they've got, they, they worship the flies. Like, the flies are good somehow. Uh, we can't stand flies. But for some reason, they worship the flies, maybe thinking that they bring them some specific message or something from the gods. Anyway, they worship the gods. The Jews would uh, look at that idea of the Lord of the flies and, and just kind of poke fun at it. They're, they're, they're worshiping these flies that are all around manure, right? So essentially what they, what they said whenever they would say this is, Lord of the dung heap, okay? So that's essentially the way they looked at this, this kind of idol. And this is the reason why they would bring up this name. It's a, it's a derogatory term. And it's essentially saying that Jesus is doing this because he serves the Lord of the dung heap. And that's the one who has given him this power. You see how derogatory it is. And then he says, this is the prince of demons. As an Israelite, this is something that would be a big deal to you. Okay? That, that he is a worshiper of a false god, an idol. That he is now doing these miracles as a form of deception to get us to follow his idols would be terrifying. Because the Israelites had just suffered all of their captivity and all of the, the suffering of, of the fall of the nation had come primarily because of their worship of idols. So now the Pharisees are coming in and saying, this guy is trying to lure you away from the Lord and all the teachings that we the Pharisees have tried to teach you to make you faithful. And he's trying to pull you off into idol worship. Well, this is actually their, their go-to rejection. Of Jesus, You go back to chapter 9, and if you remember this, uh, as we were studying, Jesus uh, had mentioned, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, back in chapter 9. And then he, he talked to them about fasting, the sacrifice is not what God desires. And then he heals a bunch of people, and he heals, in verse 32, a man who is demon-possessed and is also mute. So here's a man who has two afflictions. He heals them, and all the crowds marvel, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Verse 34, but the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So this is their go-to remark. Whenever Jesus does something amazing that could only be from God, to say, obviously, he's worshiping a false god, and this is some kind of magician, some kind of trickery, don't fall for it. Well, why in the world won't they accept the truth that is right before their eyes? That Jesus is the Messiah. Why don't they just believe it? It's obvious. A man is mute. A man is blind and demon-possessed. He's got all these things going on. Jesus speaks and the man is healed. It's obvious, isn't it, that God is with him? Well, the actual problem that they have is going back to what's said earlier in this chapter and what's said earlier in chapter 9, he's not accepting their sacrifices. So he hurt their feelings. He hurt their feelings. Oh, uh, he's demon depressed. Don't, don't follow him. Follow us because we know the right way because look at all our sacrifices and look at all the things that we do. Jesus doesn't care 
about their sacrifices. He wants mercy out of them, and they have no desire to give mercy. So in order to get the people to be on their side, they set themselves against Jesus, and they say he is uh, doing all these things by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Well, Jesus responds in verses 25, uh, really all the way down through 37, but first of all, he gives us three, uh, a threefold argument why their whole statement is ridiculous. And then he gives us a threefold warning. So we're going to look at the threefold argument, look at the threefold warning, and then we're going to look at some details in that warning that trip a lot of people up. Okay? So first of all, let's, let's read verses 25 through 29 and see the threefold argument. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges." But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So notice the, the threefold argument that he gives them. First of all, uh, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. What you're saying doesn't make sense because what you're saying is Satan has decided to destroy his own kingdom. If he is out there uh, working through me to cast out his own demons then he is divided against himself. This is not the way people typically conquer their enemies. <laughs> they don't go out and destroy their own troops. But Jesus has been working to destroy many of the demon-possessed uh, people that are out there and trying to cast out all these demons in order to free them from the yoke, from the slavery, from the bond that Satan has put on these people. So, so really what they're trying to say doesn't make sense because if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself and he's destroying himself. Why would Satan do that? It doesn't help him because these demons are helping him have control over the people in the nation. He's actually disarming himself and that makes no sense. He goes on and he says, uh, does, does casting out demons make someone a servant of Satan? <laughs> he says, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now, we don't really know who that's referring to. Maybe it's referring to uh, the Pharisees have people that cast out demons. Or maybe it's referring to his disciples who are maybe the sons of the crowd. Maybe that's the way he's looking at them. But these guys are doing the same thing and, and they have no understanding of Beelzebul, or they have no uh, intention of doing this by some other god, but you would condemn me for doing it. Why aren't you condemning them as well? Uh, if, if, and why don't you condemn everybody who casts out demons? Like, what's the grounds for this? There's no functional reason for you to say that I am doing this by the working of Satan. But he says in contrast, verse 28, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So essentially, he takes this argument against them, and he twists it, and he defeats their false claim, and he ends up by the end of it proclaiming 
This is the sign that the kingdom of God is near. The same statement he's been proclaiming the whole time. As he goes in their synagogues, as he heals, he's preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he illustrates what he's doing in verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed... He may plunder his house. This is the picture of what Jesus is actually doing. He's going in and disarming Satan. He's taking away all the strength that Satan has over all of these people so that they're not being deceived or led away, so that they're not being harassed, so that they're not being oppressed by Satan. He's setting them free so that they can find the Messiah and the kingdom. He's trying to give them an opportunity to break Satan's spell, not trying to cast them under his spell. Jesus is on the side of God, standing against Satan, seeking to destroy the works of Satan. And that's the point he tries to make. Then, in verses 30 through 37, Jesus gives us a threefold warning. Notice verse 30. He says, Whoever is not with me, is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account. For every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified. And by your words you will be condemned. So here we see Jesus responding with warnings. First of all, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. He makes it very clear here what's going on. He makes sure that the line is very clearly drawn. That these people are against me. They are not for me. And those who are not with me will not gather with me. Those who are lost sheep of Israel. Remember he's talked about he's, he's here to seek and to save the lost sheep of Israel. And so he says instead of gathering with me, what they're trying to do is scatter these sheep. They are the, the shepherds that are harassing the helpless. That we talked about earlier in chapter 9. They are harassing the helpless. And so, obviously, they are his enemies. They're making themselves his enemies by making statements like this. Then he says that these people who reject him will not be forgiven. Forgiveness is not going to be granted to those who are going to blaspheme like this, who are going to reject the word of God, reject the truth that Jesus is bringing. Um, This is a very strong warning 
that there is, this is the time for God to bring about this great forgiveness in Israel. All these blessings that were promised in the Old Testament have come, but they will not be provided for those who rebel, those who reject the truth that is very clearly spoken to them. And we'll talk more about this a little bit in a second. Then thirdly, he brings up this imagery of the good and the bad, right? Uh, Don't claim to be good when you're producing what is bad, what is worthy of judgment. Uh, If you're a good tree, then produce good fruit. If you're a bad tree, know that you're a bad tree. And don't call yourself a bad tree or a good tree as you're producing all this bad fruit. He says, "Out uh, out of the good treasure of his heart, A person brings forth what is good. He speaks what is good. And out of the evil treasure in his heart, a person speaks what is evil. And those who speak what is evil will be found to be evil, and they will be judged for their evil. The picture throughout these warnings is that those who reject what is good and spew out evil are on the side of Satan not on the side of Jesus. I love the image here, too, in verse 34. He says, you brood of vipers. This is the same thing John the Baptist said about these Pharisees, uh, that they are a brood of vipers. Out of their mouth comes poison, things that harm, things that cause doubt and disperse the people who would be saved otherwise. They're bringing about destruction rather than salvation. Now, as we read through that, your mind is probably wondering the whole time, you probably didn't hear anything I said, uh, what is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And this is a question that I've heard commonly uh, and, and even had myself many times. What is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And a lot of times we think of this as this particular sin that is a big no-no, that, oh, you do that, there's no forgiveness. But think about this for a minute, and let's, let's try to, to comprehend what's being said. Notice he says, uh, he, he says all this in response to them calling the Spirit of the Lord the Lord of the dung heap. That's extremely blasphemous, isn't it? That's extremely blasphemous. To see all these wonderful works of God and to attribute them to Satan is extremely evil and blasphemous. It reminds us of blasphemy, which was mentioned uh, back in the book of Leviticus. You remember back earlier in chapter 12, uh, they had committed the sin against the Sabbath, and we looked at Numbers 15, where uh, they stoned the man who had picked up sticks on the Sabbath. Well, similarly, back in Leviticus 24, we see a woman who has a son who gets in a fight, and he curses God in the midst of the fight, and people hear it, And then they bring him before Moses, and the people who heard it put their hand on him, and then they stone him to death. Blasphemy is punishable by death. And so Jesus calls them blasphemers, that they have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And our question is, is this a special, unforgivable sin that Jesus mentions here that we must take a special note of, and that if we have ever done it, then we'll never be forgiven There's no no hope for us anymore. Well, look closely. Okay? Look at verse 31. He says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. 
Notice how he says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. The picture is that God is willing to forgive every sin. And if you think about the Bible as a whole, isn't that the picture we have throughout the entire Bible, that God is willing to forgive every sin? I mean, we don't ever see this exception clause anywhere else whenever God says, I'm going to forgive everybody. We never see an exception clause that includes, except those who uh, blaspheme the, the spirit that is, uh, that is given in this way. Uh, that's not really the way it's ever presented to us. But if we look back at, at those words as those forgivenesses are often mentioned, we do notice something that's really important. If you look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, it's kind of an example. There's a bunch of examples. He says, uh, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Picture of forgiveness, right? Verse 19. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Notice the picture there in Isaiah, and this is a picture we see commonly throughout the Bible, is that God offers this complete and total forgiveness of all sin. It's not, though your sins are as scarlet, though you're completely and utterly wrapped up in your sin, worthy of judgment, uh, God will make you almost as white as snow. There's just this one little sin of blasphemy against the Spirit that He just can't forgive. He's going to have to judge you for that. But everything else he's going to wash. That's not the picture. But the picture is that he will completely and utterly take away all sin that is committed. But the picture is also there that those who refuse, who, those who are not willing or obedient, those who refuse and rebel will not be forgiven. And I think that's the picture that really Jesus is trying to give us of what these men are doing, especially as you continue into the next section. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good. They've just blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And here he tells them, you need to make the tree good and the fruit good. That's what he tells them. Is that not giving him an opportunity? Make your tree good and your fruit good. But it's almost as though he's exasperated. Either make the tree good and the fruit good, or the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruits. He's saying, expose yourself as being evil people so that these people are not being deceived, or make yourself good people. And even in that, I would say that there's probably some hint of change, repent before it's too late. But what we see also in this next section is... Uh, the, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. There's a picture of uh, having an abundance of evil in their heart that has resulted in this blasphemous word. And so what Jesus is really trying to say, I think, in all of this is 
those who have this abundant evil in their hearts, this rebellion, this defiance, this desire to do what they want to do and stubbornly rebel against God, they're not going to listen to the word of God spoken to them. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. They're going to keep pressing on ahead in what they want to do. They will not be forgiven. And their careless words will be held they will be held accountable for those, those words that they've spoken. And because of that, they will be condemned. So what does this all mean for us? And what does, this, what does this mean as we study through this? Notice, this is not some accidental saying the wrong thing in the wrong way because I'm, I'm immature and because I don't know, I didn't know enough, and, and I just had, or maybe I just had the wrong heart at the time, and, and I was in a bad place, and, and now God will never forgive me, even though now I have this repentant heart. But this is stating that these men who are educated in the word of God and, and understand fully what Jesus is, who he is, and what he has come to do, and yet they still refuse to listen and to submit, will not find forgiveness on the day of judgment. Because they refuse. Their religious zeal for sacrifices has made them stubbornly reject the truth. Do we see the warning in that? What a warning that is for us to think so much about our sacrifices that we rebel against this statement of, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That we rebel against the teaching of God to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love one another as he has loved us and as we love ourselves. This is what God desires from us. And if we are rebelling against it, then we have the same kind of expectation. We are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. We are rebelling against the truth that the Holy Spirit has revealed to us through his word. And those of us who have become children of God can easily fall into this. And we must be aware. This reminds me so much of Hebrews chapter 6. If you want to turn over there real quick. In Hebrews chapter 6, we have a statement that has also confused many people, but I think the two are very nearly tied together. And it really helps us to understand what's going on in Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, if you remember in Hebrews, uh, the Hebrew writer has told this people who are listening that the word of God is able to cut us, that it, it's supposed to uh, change us, it's supposed to reform us and remake us. Uh, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And this is the picture he gives us of the word of God having its effect and making a change in us. But he says in chapter 5 that they have become dull of hearing. They're not listening to the word of God anymore. And so he says in verse 4 of chapter 6, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible... For those people to, be, to restore them, it is impossible for us to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding, up to contempt, holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated 
receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. The picture here is the same as the picture we've been studying about. That those who are stubborn and are refusing to submit any longer to the truth. Here we have people who are enlightened, who understand what God has done for them. Uh, They understand what the Holy Spirit has revealed. And yet they have decided to turn their hearts away from the blessings of God. It says, notice this, it is impossible, and then you skip all that down to verse um, 6, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. The picture is that those who have decided, I don't care anything about the sacrifice that God has given to me after receiving the blessings from that sacrifice, cannot be approached by someone who is a Christian and told, Look at all the blessings that God wants to give you if you'll just repent of your sins and and turn away from them and turn to God. They're not going to be turned away from that. They've already turned away from their sins once. We can't turn them away again because what we're offering, they've already rejected. They've decided, they've determined in their heart to rebel against God. How many times have we heard of preachers who know the word... They understand all the blessings that are in Christ. They understand all the things that God commands them. And then they turn away from it. And they pursue some woman, some woman who's not their wife, who's someone else's wife, and they they go after them. They leave their job preaching. They, They just leave the Lord altogether. What hope is there in turning their heart back to serving God when they have known all the blessings God is trying to give them and rejected those blessings. They're stubborn. They become hard-hearted. And now there's, there's not much hope in turning them back to where they should be. That doesn't mean that God would not forgive them if they did. As Jesus said in, in the text there, make your tree good and its fruit good. As he says here, it's a very similar picture. Those who drink of the rain that falls on them and then they produce a good crop, they'll receive a blessing. But if they're bearing thorns and thistles, they're causing people to stumble or fall away or doubt the Lord, then they're going to receive judgment. The end is to be burned. He judges all those who refuse to repent. So the message for us is, What kind of treasure is in our heart? As we hear the word of the Lord spoken to us, how are we going to respond to it? The response of stubborn rebellion will not be forgiven. If we hear something clearly spoken and understood, such as, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and then we decide... I don't really think God means that. I'm just going to come to church and I'm just going to participate in the worship service and then I'm going to go and live my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to serve me and I'm going to live for myself. Do we see how we're rebelling? We're not doing the things God has commanded us to do. We're We're just putting on the show that we're righteous when in fact we're not. What kind of fruit is being produced in our lives? 
What kind of heart do we have? The evil heart does not produce anything but thorns and thistles for the Lord. And so as we read this, we see a sobering reminder, a warning even for us. Does this make you scared? It should. Because it is possible for us to fall away. It is possible for us to pursue our own ways and rebel against the word of the Lord that is revealed to us. It's possible for us to shift the blame as a stubborn person does. For us to deny our faults. For us to justify our failures. And for us to completely deceive ourselves. If you're here this morning and you fear that and you understand that, odds are high that you're not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You're seeking to serve Him and you're afraid of the judgment that He will bring upon those who rebel against Him. Hold on to that for all your life and don't let it go. I know far too many people who've walked away from the Lord after receiving His blessings. And I fear for them. Because these scriptures tell us that they have sinned a sin that's leading to death. And there's very little hope of turning their hearts around. If you're here this morning and you know that the Lord has promised forgiveness to those who turn to Him, hear the Lord's message. Hear the message of the Holy Spirit and don't rebel against it this morning. Obey the word of the Lord. Receive the grace that he offers. He will forgive every sin. Everything we've done wrong can be washed away and made whiter than snow if we humbly come to him in submission. Will you do that? If you have need, please come as we stand and sing.